Luke 15, 11 through 32. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. We're continuing a series on this very famous parable we just heard read, uh, most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of God's love for us as lost people. But as we've been seeing each week, if we only read this as a story of God's love for us as individuals, then we're missing one of the biggest points, because this is not just a story about how God's love transforms us individually, it's a story about how God's love transforms community. This week, we get to the heart of the story. It's, it's all about forgiveness. Now, we love the idea of forgiveness, um, that sounds far more attractive to our cultural ears than last week's topic of repentance. And that's because we live in a society um, that puts tremendous value on things like tolerance, inclusion, love, grace. Forgiveness goes along with those things really, really well. We love the idea of forgiveness. 
But when it comes to actually practicing forgiveness towards other people, it's a different story, especially if it's somebody who really hurt you or somebody we see as being especially evil or wicked or somebody that we consider a danger to society. In fact, as I've been preparing this week, I've been like almost hyper aware of how potentially offensive it could be at this cultural moment to be talking about something like forgiveness because our news, news feeds are filled with all kinds of stories about oppression and victimization and abuse. And when we think about our world, one of the things we think is we are desperately in need of justice, and we are. So why would we talk about forgiveness? Forgiveness feels almost like a denial or a suspension of justice. We should be talking about justice. Why are we talking about forgiveness? Well, remember something. Jesus was the member of an oppressed, victimized, and abused group of people. He was a Jewish person living in Roman-occupied society. And yet, he gave us this parable to teach us about repentance. Apparently, Jesus thought, I mean, forgiveness, to teach us about forgiveness. Because Jesus thought, apparently, forgiveness was something important for us to know about. That not only do we need to see and understand what it means for us to receive God's forgiveness, but we need to see and understand how that forgiveness is supposed to reproduce itself in our lives and make us people who are actually able to extend the same forgiveness to other people. So forgiveness isn't just something that God wants to give to us. It's, it's something that he wants us to give away, but you can't give away something that you haven't actually received. In fact, Jesus said that the way you know you've really embraced God's forgiveness for you is if you're able to extend it to other people. So for instance, in Matthew 6, in that very famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave us, part of that prayer says, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, Jesus is saying that um, your relationships with other people are always, always a reflection of your relationship with God. And that if you are unable or unwilling to extend forgiveness to other people, it's because you have not really yet embraced God's forgiveness for you in the first place. You see, forgiveness is difficult. Forgiveness is scary. Forgiveness is hard. Jesus, in this parable, is inviting us to go deep. Every week, uh, the first week, he invited us to go deep into what it means to be lost. Last week, he invited us to go deep into what it means to repent. This week, Jesus invites us to go deep into the heart of God himself. I mean, who is God? What is he like? What is he like really? Jesus is saying, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what he's really like, Look at his forgiveness. We're going to learn three things this week about God's forgiveness and hence the same kind of forgiveness that we should be having in our own lives. We're going to see that forgiveness is three things. It's intentionally proactive, it's driven by compassion, and it's substitutionary sacrifice. Okay? Forgiveness is intentionally proactive, driven by compassion, and substitutionary sacrifice. First, it's intentionally proactive. Now, we looked at this a little bit last week, but remember the story. Uh, this younger son comes to his father, and he asks for his inheritance while the father was still alive, which in that culture was the same thing as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. It was a horrible betrayal, a horrible rejection of the father. And yet, as we see, the father does not make the son crawl and grovel his way back before he will actually receive him back. So in verse 20, notice what it says. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
the father ran out to the son as he was coming back. The literal translation is he, um, he fell on his neck and smothered him with kisses. This is amazing. I want us to think about this a little bit. Remember, the son had hurt this father in the deepest way possible. This, this was the worst kind of rejection and betrayal that he could have done. Now, our typical response to something like that would be to say, well, if they want to make it right, let them make the first move. Let them crawl and grovel and, and, and work their way back to us, and then maybe, just maybe, I'll take them back. That's what we would do. We think if someone hurts you, then it's up to them to make the first move. Not this father. The moment the son shows his face... The moment he appears in the outskirts of town, that father is off of his porch and all over this son with his love. And remember something, this is before he's ever had a chance to hear what the son's got to say. For all he knows, the son's come back to ask for more money. He doesn't know what's in the son's heart. This, this son may have an even greater betrayal in store for the father. He just doesn't know. And yet he showers him with love. He welcomes him back home. He takes the initiative and he goes out to meet the son. And notice something else. It's not just the younger son that the father does this with. It's the older son as well. Because later on, when they're having a party to welcome this younger son back home, uh, the older brother hears about it. He won't go in. He's furious. He's furious at the brother for what he did. He's furious at the father for welcoming the son back into the home. He's furious. He will not go into the party. But what does this father do? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't do what we would do. Uh, we would say, oh, he doesn't want to come into the party? Well, fine. Let him stay out there until he's good and ready to come in, and then maybe we'll let him in. The father does not do that. And remember something, this older son had hurt and rejected and betrayed the father as well. He, he publicly shamed him by refusing to come into the party. That would have been a huge betrayal in that society. In fact, when they have their little conversation later on, we'll look at that in a couple of weeks, uh, you see how just deeply the betrayal and the rejection of this older son goes into this father's life. It was a very public way of shaming the father by refusing to go into the party. And yet this father goes out to the son and in, endures even more shame to his own reputation in order to go out to the son to plead with him to come into the party. This is a God who takes initiative. This is a God who always makes the first move. He this is a God, this is a Father who is constantly scanning the horizon for you, constantly watching out for you. And listen, just to apply this to our own lives, uh, this is a wonderful picture of things that Jesus was constantly teaching about what forgiveness looks like. Because in Matthew 5, again, back in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says if you're going to worship and you remember that, that somebody has something against you, you should drop what you're doing and go and make it right with that person before you go back into worship. And that makes sense to us because we think, well, look, you know, if I hurt somebody, then the initiative lies with me to go make it right with that person. That makes sense. But then in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, um, if somebody did something to you, if you remember that, that somebody has um, something that they did to you, you go and make it right with that person. You go to them. You know, that's not the way we normally think about things. We think, you know, if somebody did something to me, it's up to them to come and make it right with me. But Jesus says it doesn't matter whose fault it is. The initiative always lies with you. If somebody has something against you, go and make it right with them. But if, but if you have something against someone else, 
go make it right with them. The, uh, the initiative always lies with us. It's always your move, Jesus says. Now, that is not the way we normally operate in this world. Unlike the father in this parable, our natural proclivity is to say, well, if, if they want to make it right with me, let them come to me. But, but the initiative needs to lie with them. Let them make the first move. Real forgiveness does not wait for the other person to say they're sorry. Real forgiveness goes out. It moves out intentionally, proactively towards people, and it offers forgiveness. And let me be really clear about something before we move on. There's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, reconciliation absolutely requires repentance. You can't really be reconciled to somebody if they're unwilling or unable to acknowledge the wrong of what they did. Re reconciliation can't really happen if that doesn't happen. But forgiveness is always possible even if reconciliation is not because forgiveness does not depend on the wrongdoer. It depends on the person who was wronged. That's you. You see, forgiveness is already difficult. Let's make it more difficult by seeing the second thing that Jesus teaches us here. Forgiveness is not just intentionally proactive. It's also driven by compassion. You know, where, where does a forgiveness like this come from? There's only one place. And in verse 20, again, we see it. Uh, it says, but while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And that word compassion, it's hard to overemphasize how important that word is in the Bible and in this story. The Bible uses a lot of different words to describe the emotional life of Jesus. Actually, it's amazing. If you go through the Bible with an eye to this, uh, you'll be amazed to see how many times Jesus' emotions are actually described in the Bible. But by far, the word that is most frequently used to describe Jesus' emotions is this word compassion. It's a, it's a unique word. Uh, literally, it refers to your vital organs, your innards. Um, when the older translations want to translate this word, they'll actually use the word bowels. Uh, this is a love that literally kind of wells up from the very depths of your being. It's a love that you feel in, in, in the very physical, most inner parts of your being. I actually like to call it gut love because that's what it is. It's a love that wells up inside of your gut. And amazingly enough, Jesus takes this word that refers to him and his gut love, and he says, this is what the Father is like. But that's not what's most amazing. The most amazing thing is that this compassionate gut love of the Father is something that he extends to both of the sons. Because remember, each of them in their own way rejected the Father. Each of them in their own way said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Each of these sons in his own way basically put a knife in the back of their father, and yet he had a love in his gut for each one of them. In other words, no matter how badly someone has hurt you, no matter how um, evil or twisted or vile or despicable that person is, uh, this gut love of the Father is the kind of love that wants to see them not punished, not destroyed, not ejected from community, but healed and restored and welcomed back into community. Now, to have a love like that does not mean that we don't acknowledge evil, that we don't um, acknowledge injustice or wickedness when we see it. It does not mean that we fail to hold people accountable for the wrong things that they do. So, for instance, notice in this story that the father is very frank, very honest about the moral failure of his younger son. He says, this son of mine was lost. He was dead. He, what he did was wrong. He's a sinner. 
And yet none of that changes the love that I have for him or my joy to welcome him back. Now, I don't know how else to describe a love like that except to say that that is a love from another world. That is certainly not a love that would be natural or common to us in this world. Now, some people might disagree with that and say, oh, no, we should always have unconditional love for every single human being. I I think we may, a lot of us, say that we believe that, but at a day-to-day practical level, when we see evil, and especially when that evil is directed at us, we forget pretty quickly about unconditional love. You know, there is a feeling in our gut but it's not a feeling of compassion. It's a, it's a desire to crush the person who hurt us, right? So for instance, what would your attitude be toward, say, maybe like a powerful leader who's villainous and narcissistic and racist? And no, I am not talking about Donald Trump. <laughs> Yet. Of course, I'm talking about he who must not be named. Lord Voldemort. If you've read the Harry Potter books or seen the movies, you know who this is. This is the arch-villain of the whole series. This is a person who is evil incarnate. In fact, the main plot device of the whole books, the whole series of books, revolves around Voldemort's racist agenda to rid the magical world of non-magical people, otherwise known as muggles, or as they call them in the books, mudbloods, which is not a nice word. Do not call people mudbloods. But... What is your attitude towards someone like that, towards a Voldemort? What do you feel in your gut? Hmm? My guess is that very few, if any of us, would feel in our gut anything close to compassion for a Voldemort. Not compassion. We want to see him crushed. And yet at the very end of the books, when Voldemort is finally conquered, Harry Potter actually gets to see the last little remnants of Voldemort's being. And do you remember what he saw? Here's how J.K. Rowling describes it in the book. She says, Harry saw the form of a small, naked child curled on the ground, its skin raw and rough, flayed-looking, and it lay shuddering under a seat where it had been left, unwanted, stuffed out of sight, struggling for breath. What would you do if you saw something like that? Harry Potter actually feels pity for the very person who's been trying to kill him for seven books. He feels like he ought to try to comfort this poor, helpless creature. In fact, when the great wizard Dumbledore shows up, Harry asks him, what is this thing? And Dumbledore says, something that is beyond our help. There's compassion. There's pity. There's a desire to help if they could. And the the fact that they can't help Voldemort actually causes a kind of grief inside of their hearts. Dear ones, this is just the dimmest glimmer of the kind of compassionate gut love that God has for every single human being in this world. Now, listen, it's one thing to think about this um, at an abstract level in terms of a children's fantasy book. Maybe it's not that hard to imagine that you could conjure some feelings of compassion for a fictional character like Voldemort, but let's make this really real. A moment ago when I mentioned Donald Trump, emotions went up in this room. They're probably going up again right now. And regardless of how you feel about the man himself or how you feel about people who either support him or oppose him, feelings came up in your gut. But I'm guessing, again, that 
probably very few, if any of you, are having those feelings that come up in your gut of compassion. That's not what we feel. We don't feel feelings of compassion. We feel feelings of wanting to crush someone. God's love is not like our love. God's forgiveness is not like our forgiveness. God is able to hold many things in tension when he looks at you, both your wonders and your beauties and your glories and your dignity, but also your moral failure and your evil and your wickedness and your heinous crimes. When God looks at you, when Jesus says that we're lost, to understand something, Jesus is not calling us losers, even though on the surface it could maybe sound like that. When Jesus calls human beings lost, that's actually a statement of tremendous value because think about it. You don't, when you call something lost, you don't call something lost unless you're really grieved that you lost it. You want it back. And the greater the value that that thing has for you, the more grieved, the more upset you are if you actually lose it. Lost is a statement that something has incredible value to you, but it's also a very honest acknowledgement that something has gone horribly wrong that there are moments in each of our lives, maybe even whole days or whole weeks in our lives, when we're treating each other like little mini Voldemorts. Compassion is the ability to hold all of that together in the way you look at another person, both the dignity and the value they have as a human being, but also the evil and the sin and the wrongdoing that they do as human beings. Now, that's easy to do for ourselves, right? We have a very high tolerance for ambiguity in ourselves. In other words, if you do something wrong, if I do something wrong, you know, there's always so many factors that went into that. It's never black and white. It's so nuanced. Why did I do that? Well, it's complicated. But if somebody else does something wrong, we have a very low tolerance for ambiguity in other people. Now, it's, it's always, well, they're just a jerk. They're just a liar. They're just a bigot. That's all they are. We reduce them to that caricature. We reduce them to that one thing. That's all they are. We have a very high level of tolerance for ambiguity in ourselves, but a very low tolerance for ambiguity in other people. Friends, of all the places in the world, let me bring this into the church. Of all the places in the world, the church should be the one place that has the highest level of tolerance for ambiguity in all people. The one place in all the world that should have the highest level of compassion for all people because compassion is the ability to hold everything about a person in tension, both the dignity and the value and the glory and the wonder, but also the failure, the moral failure, the sin, the wickedness in people. See, God... If we've received God's compassion in our lives, then we should be able to have that same compassion reproduced in our lives and be able to hold it towards other people and understand something if we withhold the compassion. If we withhold it. And understand, I'm not saying, listen, we still hold on to the accountability. We still hold on to the, to the need, the demand for justice. We don't let go of that. But if we withhold compassion towards people that we despise, we actually become like the people that we despise. Because what will happen is your heart will grow hard. Your soul, your soul will become small. It will shrivel. It'll become like Voldemort, shriveled, inflated, and gasping for breath on a cold, hard floor if you withhold compassion. Friends, God sees both your dignity and your failure. He is able to hold that in one place, in one vision, when he looks at you. You're never just a caricature to God. You're never just one thing. When God looks at a Voldemort and when God looks at you, he doesn't see a difference in kind. He sees a difference only in degree. And he says to both of you, I want you back. 
You see, forgiveness is not just intentionally proactive. It's also driven by compassion, this deep gut love that God has. But, but it's one more thing. Because how does this forgiveness actually happen? We've seen that forgiveness is intentionally proactive. It's driven by compassion. But lastly, we need to see that forgiveness is substitutionary sacrifice. Because, you know, what does it actually look like? It's, it's one thing to to go out, to make the first move, to move out proactively, intentionally towards people that hurt you. And it's one thing to have compassion in your heart, to hold compassion towards people who may have hurt you. But what is the act of forgiveness? What's actually involved in forgiveness? You know, a lot of times people look at this parable of the prodigal son and they'll say, look, this parable that Jesus told is proof that God doesn't need anybody to make a sacrifice in order to forgive. That's just a Christian fantasy. It's a Christian construct. Look at this parable. There's no blood. There's no cross. There's no atonement. There's no sacrifice. The son repents. He comes back. The father forgives him. Voila, end of story. But is that true? What is forgiveness actually, concretely? What does it look like? Well, let's think about this together. If someone hurts you, can you forgive them? You've got to think about that for a second, right? The answer is, well, yes, but... It depends on what they did. Imagine somebody did something just small to you. You know, maybe they stepped on your toe by accident. Could you forgive them? Of course you could. Sure, it was just an accident. But imagine that they stepped on your toe, on your toe not because it was an accident, but by some act of like negligence on their part. So, for instance, I, when I lived in New York once, I was on a subway. And, you know, New York is like any other city, just more so. Um, <laughs> People get in a hurry, you know, people are selfish. And I was on the subway standing, and the doors were open, but they were getting ready to close. And I was looking out the doors, and I could see this guy running across the platform. He wanted to make that train. And just as the doors were closing, he leaped into the subway car and landed right on my foot. Man, that hurt. And of course, the guy said, Oh, sorry. But you could tell he wasn't really sorry for what he did. Really, he was just glad he made the train. You know, it's a little harder to forgive somebody for something like that because that's not just an accident. That's willful negligence. But let's take it another step further, okay? You know, see, forgiveness, it it, it always gets a little bit harder the deeper the offense, right? So um, let's say that the guy walked onto the train calmly, stood next to me, looked over at me, and then just stomped on my foot. (laughs) What would it mean for me to forgive him in that case? Well, the question actually becomes clearer if we ask the opposite question, not what is forgiveness, but what is justice? What, what, What is justice? Justice means that if somebody offends, if somebody wrongs you, that they make restitution for what they did. Justice means that if somebody does something wrong, they pay it back. So, you know, If this guy stomped on my foot, what would justice look like? I get to stomp on his foot. I pay him back for what he did. Forgiveness, therefore, is a refusal to make the other person pay. Say somebody breaks your window. Forgiveness means that you pay for the window. Justice would mean you make them pay, right? Forgiveness means, no, no. I will pay for the window. But notice something. The window still was broken. The window still needed to be fixed. There was still a debt there that needed to be paid. The only question is, who's going to pay the debt? 
Justice means you make the other person pay. Forgiveness means you pay the debt. But either way, somebody has to fix it. There is always a cost to forgiveness. And the, the deeper the hurt, the greater the cost. Because let's say instead of breaking your window that somebody killed your family, could you forgive them? You know, there are, there are things in our culture that we actually consider unforgivable. Things that are so heinous, so vile, so wicked, so despicable that, that we, we think forgiving something like that, those things are actually unforgivable. And on top of that, forgiving something like that would be unforgivable. That, that to forgive something like that would be a suspension or a denial of justice. We can't possibly forgive something like that. Now, let me, again, just be really, really clear. This parable is not about how we hold people accountable for their crimes. This parable is not about whether or not we fight or work for justice. This parable is not about how we administer justice in society. When Jesus tells a parable, he's usually making one big point, sometimes two. This par- don't read this parable looking for answers about how we hold people accountable or how we administer justice in society. Jesus told other parables that address those things, but this is not one of them. This parable is not about that. This parable is about God's heart toward you and our heart toward other people, okay? So let's just say hypothetically that somebody killed your family and you forgave them. What would that actually involve for you to forgive that person? It would mean that every time you wanted to kill them in your mind, you didn't. That every time you wanted to crush them in your heart, you didn't. That would hurt. Because instead of making them pay, you would be paying. Instead of making them suffer, now you would be suffering. Don't you see? That is not a suspension of justice. That is a transfer of justice. You're taking the debt upon yourself. Friends, that's the essence of forgiveness. Instead of making the other person pay the debt, you pay the debt yourself. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. All forgiveness at its essence is substitutionary sacrifice. And that is exactly what the father does in this story. Do you know why as soon as the father saw the son... Why he was able to just leap off his porch, run to the sun, and shower him with kisses? Why was he able to do that? Tim Keller taught me this. He says that, you know, imagine all those months, the father's sitting on the porch. He's thinking about his son, but every time he's thinking about his son, instead of crushing him in his heart, instead of killing him in his heart, he's kissing him in his heart. And the more he kissed him in his heart, paying that debt of forgiveness, so... He did that enough times in his heart so, so that when the son showed up for real, the father was able to kiss him for real because there was a debt. There was a huge debt to be paid in, in all kinds of ways, but at the very least, just economically, there was a huge debt to be paid. This son had wasted probably about a third of the father's estate in wasteful living. So when he's coming back, you see the son actually has a plan for how he's going to get readmitted to the family. And you see it in verse 19. He's got a little speech he prepared. When he comes back, he's going to say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the problem. But he's got a solution. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, he's not coming back expecting to be readmitted to his son. He wants to pay the father back. He wants to earn his way back into relationship with the father. Friends, that is a very religious way of relating to God. Religion says, if I'm a good person, 
if I try really hard, if I work really hard, if I do all the right things, then God will love me and accept me and bless me and take me back. That is not the gospel, however. The gospel says that you either come to God by grace or you don't come at all. And we looked at that last week. Notice when this son comes back, that he goes into his little speech, right? The father comes, the son goes into his speech. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he never gets to say another word. The father cuts him short. That's as far as he ever gets. He says, make me, he never gets to say, make me your hired servant. Why? Because the father says, quick, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals, kill the fattened calf. The son of mine was lost, but now he's found. What just happened? The father was paying the debt for the son, so the son didn't have to pay the debt himself. You either come to God by grace or you don't come at all. Because friends, remember that even though Jesus made up this story, it actually points to something that happened in real life. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the true son of the father. And if anyone in all of history ever earned the right to be called a son of the father, it was Jesus Jesus earned that right because Jesus lived a life of perfect beauty, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. From all eternity, Jesus sat on the throne of heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit, which means that from all eternity, the Father was always kissing Jesus. And yet on the cross, Jesus was crushed so you could be kissed. Jesus was killed so you could be made alive. Jesus was, was, was rejected so that you could be welcomed by the Father. Don't you see, this is not a suspension of justice. The cross was the ultimate transfer of justice because on the cross, Jesus got the justice you deserve so that we could receive the love that he deserves. He paid our debt with his blood and he became the servant the total, ultimate, hired servant of all so that we could be welcomed back into the love of the Father so that every single one of us, both you and me, could be called daughters and sons of the living God. And if that gift is a gift that you have received, there's what you need in order to be able to make the first move, to take the initiative and to move towards people who've hurt you. There's what you need in order to be able to hold compassion in your heart towards people who are complex, both, both people of dignity and honor, but also people of sin and failure and wickedness. There's what you need for that. Because the only way you can do that is instead of crushing them in your heart, you're kissing them in your heart. Instead of making them pay the debt, you're paying the debt. Do you see how that works? I know that even the very thought of doing something like that feels like a death to us. It feels like a suspension or a denial of justice, but it's not. It's a transfer of justice. But if you know that on the cross, Jesus Christ enacted the ultimate transfer of justice, that he received the justice we deserve so that we could receive the love that he deserves, if you know that, then you can turn around and extend the same forgiveness to other people. And instead of making your soul small and shriveled, it will actually enlarge and magnify your soul. It will make you a great heart. It will make you like the Father. Has that family resemblance begun in your life? It can today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your forgiveness. Father, one simple word that within it encompasses within itself 
so much, Lord, your, your intentional proaction towards us to make the first move. It encompasses your compassion, your gut love toward us. It encompasses your sacrifice that you were willing to pay the debt so that we didn't have to, Lord, that you were willing to take the pain and the suffering upon yourself so that we could be called your children. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to more fully embrace your forgiveness, your love, and your compassion towards us, that we might more fully be able to extend the same forgiveness, love, and compassion towards others and to want passionately not their punishment and their destruction, but their healing and their restoration. Father, to the end, that your glory may be seen in this world and that your kingdom may be advanced in all of creation, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.